listening to Rights Up, the podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Today's episode is the final book talk about comparative human rights law, a new book by Professor Sandy Fredman, published by Oxford University Press. In this episode, Sandy talks with Cullum Okaneda, Professor of Human Rights Law at University College London. So here we are in this special episode of Rights Up, where Sandy Fredman will be discussing her new book, Comparative Human Rights Law, with Professor Cullum Okaneda, Professor of Human Rights Law at UCL in London. And between 2006 and 2016, Cullum also served as a member of the European Committee on Social Rights of the Council of Europe, which is a committee of experts that interprets and applies the principles of the European Social Charter and monitors state compliance with that charter. Sandy is, of course, the director of the Oxford Human Rights Hub and professor of law at the University of Oxford. Her book, Comparative Human Rights Law, is available from Oxford University Press. So today, in this final book talk in our three-part series, Sandy and Cullum will be focusing on the problematic division between social and economic rights and civil and political rights, which is a key theme of the book. All right, let's get started with Sandy. Hello, I'm Sandy Fredman. I'm the author of Comparative Human Rights Law. I'm Professor of Law here at Oxford University and Director of the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm delighted to have Professor Colm O'Kennedy here with me today in Oxford to have a discussion about the book and to share his thoughts with us. Colm, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Sandy. I'm delighted to be here in Oxford on this lovely day. Um, I'm a professor of human rights law at University College London. I have been a former member of the European Committee on Social Rights of the Council of Europe. Stepped down from that three years ago and still absorbing the experience. And um, I claim some expertise in equality and social rights law. And it's a great pleasure for me to have read your fabulous book and to be having this conversation with you today. I'm particularly to, glad to have Colm here with us because, as he said, he has a vast experience on equality law, both academically and in practice. In fact, Colm and I first met when the expanded version of the Equality Act came into effect. And in particular, we were doing a project on age discrimination, mm-hmm. which was entirely new in the UK at the time. And we were furrowing new ground. So that's when we met. Since then, Collins, as he said, been a member of the Committee on Social Rights, which is the European Committee, which uh, is responsible for monitoring and adjudicating on the European Social Charter, which is the corresponding document in at European level on social and economic and cultural rights corresponding to the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the document on civil and political rights, which is why I was particularly interested in your thoughts about one of the chapters we're going to discuss, which is the chapter which argues that economic and social rights should be integrated with civil and political rights. 
And that's one of the themes which we are going to be talking about. As, as, I, as I say in the book, the architecture of international human rights law has very much been split so that there is the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights on the one hand, and there's the International Convention on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights on the other, and that's mirrored at European level with the European Convention of Human Rights and the European Social Charter. Uh, what I've done in this book and done also in my previous book, Human Rights Transformed, is to argue that this is a false dichotomy and that actually both in thinking about it, teaching it and adjudicating it, we should be taking a much more integrated approach. So I would be really interested in your views on this, particularly given that you were part of a committee which was uh, had its jurisdiction uh, set out according to this very dichotomy between social rights and civil and political rights. Hmm. Well, well, Sandy, I must say one of the really great things about this uh, fabulous book is the way that you lead with socioeconomic rights from the beginning almost. I think it's chapter three, you go straight into it and you use it immediately to debate and discuss some of the issues arising about the existence of disagreement about human rights. We disagree about human rights, we have differences of views about their content, their scope, their content, how they should be interpreted and applied, and the role of the courts and other expert bodies and the political branches of the state. So we have disagreement. Normally, when you have a book about human rights law, that disagreement is illustrated by reference to a classic civil and political right like freedom of speech. This tends to result in a certain staleness of debates. You have the same talking points being repeated over and over and over for 50 years now, worth of it. So one of the, in one of the many ways in which your book is a blast of fresh air is how you use socioeconomic rights to get right to the heart of that issue of disagreement from the beginning. And I think it's a really novel and a really interesting thing about the book. And I think you, you've put your finger on something very, very important because the traditional dichotomy that you've referred to between civil and political rights on the one hand and socioeconomic rights on the other hand, um, I think has very has exercised a very negative impact in our thinking over the years. It's sort of resulted in a certain set of issues being excluded from the purview of human rights law. It's also, as a consequence, resulted in a certain set of very important issues being excluded from thinking about human rights. Issues of material inequality, socioeconomic destitution, poverty, all this range of issues have often been left out of the human rights picture when there's no reason for it to be left out of that picture. You go right back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and socioeconomic rights are there fully integrated into the vision of rights set out by Eleanor Roosevelt and her committee after the Second World War. And yet we've had this dichotomous split leading to socioeconomic rights being sidelined. They've been the, the dark side of the moon on that dichotomy. They've been left out of the picture. And I think, as I said, I think it's excellent that your book brings them back into the picture, so to speak, that you've, you, you, you use them to highlight the issues of disagreement and how we handle disagreement. And I think that's that's crucially important because to leave them out is to um, is to hamstring the development of human rights thought, law, and practice. So, in, in your role on the committee, do you have any examples of times when you thought it would be helpful to have a much more integrated approach? 
either because you thought social and economic and cultural rights would be given were being given a secondary status or because actually there are some really deeply integrated issues which should not be kept out of the economic social and cultural rights discussion that's an excellent question i can give you several examples just to show how integrated civil and political and social economic rights are while i was on the committee we had a sequence of collective complaints and these are this is a very particular procedure unique to the european social charter where certain states 15 or so states of the council of europe have signed up to this collective complaint protocol allowing certain categories of ngo and representative trade union employer federations to bring collective complaints to us on the commission on social rights for an adjudication we had quite a few of those collective complaints relating to housing access to housing and social welfare very often brought by groups like the European Roma Rights Centre and others who were very very much concerned with fighting for the rights of the Roma and other disadvantaged groups in central and eastern Europe we also had similar com- collective complaints being brought by di- di- by disability rights centered groups from Belgium and elsewhere and it was fascinating to adjudicate these complaints through a socioeconomic lens because we were being asked to to determine whether there had been a violation of the right to housing of the right of families to receive social legal and economic protection of the right of women to receive social and economic legal protection so it was very much a social rights framework but of course many of the issues we had to deal with were the sort of meat and drink of conventional anti-discrimination analysis as dealt with through the civil and political rights framework so you see there how it's impossible to separate out these issues that sort of non-discrimination has its foot in both camps in in both the civil and political camp and the civil and political camp and by virtue of the fact about how that issue straddles both camps it sort of shows how even the the the, the conceptualization of there being a dichotomy of being two different camps is just doesn't make any sense for dealing with a problem with a fascinating case involving access to abortion in Italy um Italy um perhaps counterintuitively has one of the most permissive abortion laws in the world drawn up in the early 1970s which actually actively guarantees the legal right of women to uh, access abortion but it's it can be very difficult to access abortion in Italy because because of conscientious objection provisions and rules that pretty much allow um many doctors and nurses to opt out of providing abortion facilities so as a consequence it can be very very difficult to actually get an abortion in substantial chunks of Italy women looking for an abortion often have to travel massive long distances many of whom for example are not able to do that or at least not be able to do that easily and this was before us in relation to article 11 of the social charter which is the right to access healthcare so we were looking at this through a social and economic rights lens of access to healthcare linked to non-discrimination but of course you see the obvious overlap with the privacy autonomy equality issues that arise in abortion under the civil and political rights framework our focus was a little bit different but the issues were essentially the same which just illustrates the artificial nature of the dichotomy so what i think is really interesting about that example is another aspect of the dichotomy which is that you could get some groups claiming their civil and political rights in order to defeat other groups claiming their economic social and cultural rights so the the right of conscientious objection 
is very much embedded in a civil and political rights regime, which is the right to freedom of religion, the right um, to of autonomy and to decide what you do and what you don't do. But if you can't adjudicate them both in the same framework, then you as a committee looking at the right to health might find it difficult to also balance that against freedom of religion and a right to conscientiously object. And that example of conscientious objection is actually very widespread in many countries. similar one is in South Africa where there's also very permissive abortion law and there's also very, very widespread conscientious objection. So you need to be able to look at them both together in in that kind of way. The other thing which is striking, which I found just looking at the uh, two instruments side by side, is to see, actually, as you said, there is a right to respect for home and family in almost all civil and political rights. And there is a right to a house in economic, social, cultural rights. But how can you have a right to respect for your home if you don't have a house? And these are things that my students say in obvious kind of ways. Um, so if you can't, if you were adjudicating this under the civil and political rights regime, it's difficult to make sense of that without also thinking about the provision of housing or the, the law governing evictions um, and so on. Absolutely, I agree completely. The, the, the operation within a dichotomous regime where, only, where you're only looking at one half of the picture is a real problem. Um, on the abortion issue, how we handle the conscientious objection issue is to very much say in no way did we have any issues with Italy granting a strong conscientious objection, right? That was a matter for the state and for the ECHR. Our findings were simply made in relation to the right to access to health care to make clear that the Italian government had an, uh, an, an obligation to women seeking legal healthcare treatment initially, abortion, to make that facility available. It was up to the Italian government to decide how to arrange that. And, and, and actually our judgment went into a certain degree of detail as to what it should be done. Um, but your point about have the, the awkwardness of trying to adjudicate these issues in a in a in a single frame in a single framework is, is actually very very well made. The conscientious objection issue is actually quite important there, and we, we we try to deal with it. But obviously, it's a little bit difficult in the circumstances. Um, on the housing issue, I'm always reminded by a gr- of a great paper by Jeremy Waldron, written many years ago now, I suppose, where in the 1990s, I think, where he made the point that even uh, the most fundamental civil and political right is conceptualised by John Locke and others, freedom of thought. To a certain extent, it depends on having a room moderately warm, moderately insulated, moderately not damp, in which to think some th- thoughts about God and religion and conscience and all these issues. That freedom of thought, which is often seen as the most private, individualistic, non-socially dependent right that could possibly exist. Freedom of thought doesn't really exist as a meaningful right if you're shivering in a tent or shivering in a sleeping bag on the street in London. And uh, I always thought that was a wonderful article, which I always tell my students to read. And I think for me, it very, very much illustrates the the artificiality of the civil and political socio-economic dichotomy here that even when it comes to something as fundamental as freedom of thought let alone private life housing life housing family life and so on even when it comes to freedom of thought 
there's an inevitable interconnection here if we're going to be honest about honest and conceptually consistent and rigorous about human rights their social economic civil and political rights are inherently interconnected well thanks that's really really interesting i wonder whether we could talk a little bit more about the point you made about equality so in the book what i tried to do actually in in most of the chapters is to have a section on seeing the rights through the lens of equality, particularly in order to bring in some of the gendered aspects which often get missed out. Um, so for abortion, for example, one, one of the lenses which I tried to think about was bringing it in as an equality issue. And that's, that's, that's true for even freedom of speech, freedom of religion, etc., so I wonder what you think. We, we, we don't really classify the right equality as either civil, political or um, social and economic exactly. They usually appear in both. Mm-hmm. Um, but many jurisdictions see the economic side of inequality as a matter of policy, social policy for the state, not a matter of human rights at all, a matter for... Um, the electorate rather than a matter for courts and um, I wondered what you think of the idea that human rights which have implications for budgets and for the way in which governments make economic decisions accountable to the electorate uh, what is the implication of that especially in that this might entail courts or committees like yours telling governments about how to spend money? Well, I think that's the very big question in this whole area. You can, of course, recognise in the very diverse landscape of human rights issues and concerns and adjudication, there are areas where you may have more or less scope for, for example, judicial intervention. But of course, we recognise this in civil and political rights as already established. So in certain aspects of national security, we, we, we we make provision for much less space for legal intervention than we do in other contexts. Um, And I think a similar analysis operates when it comes to socioeconomic terrain. You know, if I was constructing my ideal human rights law, if anyone were to ever ask me to do that, which is highly unlikely, um, I would be deeply sceptical of the civil and political socioeconomic rights dichotomy, deeply sceptical of any attempt to maintain it in law, while still recognising that there are very, very, very substantial areas of law and policy where you don't want courts and you don't want lawyers interfering in those areas, or at least interfering with maybe the wrong word, you don't want them exercising too uh, powerful a sway over the issues being resolved. Um, And that's, I think, very important for democracy and also very important for expertise. But as I said, I don't think that sort of using the civil and political rights, socioeconomic rights dichotomy as a way of indicating where those barriers should lie, I don't think that's particularly helpful at all. Um, Not least because, as your question has indicated, um, as your comment has indicated, many of these issues arise under conventional civil and political rights adjudication. There's a lot of equality cases that concern access to welfare, for example, 
um, or cuts to uh, guaranteed welfare provision that have a disproportionate effect on the basis of race, gender and disability in particular. Now, if you're a good lawyer, you can adjudicate these in the absence of any enforceable socioeconomic rights. You can find a way of challenging them under the right to non-discrimination, Article 14 ECHR. You can even, and there's a certain ideological, historical irony to this, challenge them under Article 1 of the first protocol of the ECHR, right to property, because these are guaranteed welfare rights provided as to the individual by law being changed. Um, you can challenge them under right to private life, home life and family life. There's been lots of cases in the UK about this over the years. So these issues sort of arise on both sides of the highly questionable fence, so to speak. So the fact that there are resource allocation issues that attach to socioeconomic rights by itself, that's not a reason, in my view, for simply saying this is a category of rights need to be left out of the picture since the same issues arise with non-discrimination, family life, private life on the civil and political rights side of the fence as well. So perhaps we could push that a little bit further and talk about when it is and are there any principles that we can discern that courts or committees like the committee you were on should see themselves as either not having the legitimacy or the competence to um, to make decisions or adjudicate on issues with these wide, what we might call polycentric implications that the you as a committee sitting, especially a committee which is sitting at European level, adjudicating on a lot, lots of different countries all over Europe, might not really have either enough information or enough legitimacy to adjudicate over. So the example, one of the examples um, which is in the book, which comes out a lot, is around the right to health. Um, the Brazilian example, in fact, quite a lot of South American countries where what's happened with the right to health is that courts have landed up giving individualized remedies to individuals who come claiming a right to a particular drug which the court has then granted, but because the court is myopic in the sense of only seeing the the claimant before it, the court um, is giving remedies which then strain the budget and actually skew the budget in favour of those who are able to come to court. Do you feel that's something which the committee, the um, the committee on the, the social charter, had to deal with and do you think it you all developed principles as to how we could see social and economic rights and the right to equality as, as, as really enforceable and real rights while at the same time not having these negative effects which a lot of people have used in order to say they shouldn't be real rights. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. I think if you're involved in writing about human rights law or conceptualizing it or, and then applying it, you have to be concerned with these issues. Um, I mentioned before that I think there's real democratic concerns about courts, lawyers, judges, human rights activists asserting too much for themselves, so to speak. There is real questions also of expertise. And there's the issue of unintended consequences of, of a bit of sort of well-meaning human rights activi activism slash adjudication that leads to undesirable consequences. And this come, relates both to the democratic point and also the expertise point. And I think that if you're going to be serious about human rights and 
protecting them through some sort of effective practical institutional framework, you need to take these concerns seriously. Um, in a way, if you're an activist in the field, you can constantly argue for the boat to be pushed out. But if you're writing or talking or trying to implement an institutional framework, then you need to think about the limits. I often think, you know, if you are in a position of adjudicating socioeconomic rights claims, as we were on the committee, you need to be able to give a compelling account of where you would not intervene. You need to be able to give a very consistent, clear account of what you would not be doing. One of the interesting things about being on the committee, of course, is that um, states would not hesitate to point this out to you. You're under a certain degree of pressure, rightly so, from states to behave yourself. And, and in exchanges of views with government ministers, with government lawyers, with the Commission Ministers of the Council of Europe and other bodies, states would very politely sort of remind you that you are unelected experts sitting in a committee room in Strasbourg. And, and some of my colleagues used to feel that these reminders were a bit close to the bone, shall we say. Um, but I always thought they were quite healthy. I think it's quite healthy to be reminded of these, of these, of, of these limitations. Um, I think that if you are therefore developing a socioeconomic rights framework that you want to be enforceable through some sort of legal mechanism, and the same for any human rights framework, you need to be conscious about your limits. You need to apply something approximating the margin of appreciation as applied in the European Convention on Human Rights case law. You need to defer to greater expertise. And that's especially true if you're a pan-European or an international body. You know, regional, local bodies will often have far more expertise. In particular, they may be much more aware of the law of unintended consequences. That if your decision results in expenditure being diverted to a particular area, that may mean that expenditure elsewhere goes missing. Um, and you also need, of course, to be aware of the democratic considerations. If you're, a, if you're a body like the European Commission on Social Rights and you're not producing legally enforceable judgments, you're more engaged in a sort of normative standard-setting role, you have a little bit more flexibility than a court, simply because you're aware that your judgments are, aren't binding anyone. They're not actually kicking in. They're not actually going to be enforceable tomorrow in a lower court. If you're a court... In, in that situation, however, you need to be much more conscious about the immediate precedent-setting effect of your judgments, which has been a problem I know in the Brazilian context. Um, so you, knew, you need to be aware about the limits. Having said that, you also need to bear in mind your role in trying to protect the human rights in question and that deference arguments, the arguments you should always defer to national authorities. That can be a very, very easy argument to make. And of course, in the area of socioeconomic rights, a huge amount of decision making isn't taken in a particular democratic way, isn't taken in a particular expertise driven way, is often, you know, overwhelmed bureaucracies with a certain degree of governmental and political intervention, struggling with quite complex social problems. So there is a role for socioeconomic rights adjudication in that complicated ecosystem. There is a key role for it in focusing attention on core breaches on progressive realisation and what the state should be doing. And in particular, central, making sure the experience of people being deprived of their rights is central to policy making. There's a really important role there. You just can't abuse that role or try and overstretch it or try and turn it into a sort of freewheeling social justice mission, which ultimately will help no one. 
What I think was so interesting about what you said was that a lot of these decisions about social and economic issues are not taken in a particularly democratic way. And that is one of the themes that I do develop in the book, which is that uh, the somewhat um, platitudinous phrase, which is we should not as we should as courts leave these to democratically elected legislatures, often don't reflect the reality, which is many of these decisions are taken in somewhat obscure ways, which are either potentially a result of the different powerful forces in a country and the indifferent interests, or, as you said, could well not be done in a very competent way. So one of the arguments that I, I do put forward is that a way through this conundrum is uh, through the idea of the culture of justification and the idea that um, there is a what I call bounded deliberative democracy. That is, one of the roles of the courts is to make uh, a government or an executive come out and say clearly why they made the decision, even more so, which courts are often loath to do, to ask for the financial consequences, to ask for clear accountability about budgetary implications, without necessarily saying that the court has to pronounce on what would be the right budgetary decision, but to get a kind of transparency, but not simply transparency, I call it bounded, because what the justification needs to be is to show why these resources were not used to further the right to housing, say, or the right to education or the right to health, which have already be, been a commitment which, are, which bounds this deliberation. So I wonder whether you think that that's a feasible way of approaching this, um, or some people think that's too weak, too much like administrative law, some people think that's too strong. Um, do you, you know, what, is, what are your thoughts about that? I think it's a great structuring framework, um, and I think you outline it really, really well in the book and in your previous work. I think it's a great way of thinking about the role of courts and other institutions in this context. I think creating that culture of justification is the ideal endpoint. That is what they are best placed to bring to the picture. Um, to create that culture of justification you need to flesh it out, it seems to me, in two different ways. You first of all need to have a quite clear concept of the rights that you're protecting, what they entail, um, and what might constitute a breach of those rights to give some sort of substance so that you're some sort of substance to the right in question. I, I think where civil and political rights and socioeconomic rights adjudication, if it goes wrong, it often goes wrong and your Brazilian example is a good one, where there's a lack of clarity as to the actual demands of the right, as opposed to what a sort of well-meaning, ideal healthcare system would produce. And there's a distinction there. So I think you, the first thing you need is a, a reasonably clear, developed idea of the substance of the right. And then you also need a reasonably clear idea, as I've already mentioned, of the limits of the framework, how far you can push the account, the demand for justification, bearing in mind that if you push it too far, you start taking over the conversation. But subject to those two provisos, the justificatory framework is, I think, essential. And I think 
um, some form of socioeconomic rights adjudication can be hugely important in this respect. I was consistently struck in my time on the committee how often we were dealing with issues that hadn't been properly ventilated at national level. They hadn't gone through the national courts because socioeconomic rights are generally not justiciable. They also, frankly, simply hadn't often been properly discussed in national parliaments. We, we kept on asking governments and NGOs, bring collective complaints, tell us what the national parliament had said. It was astonishing how seldom the national parliaments had debated the relevant issues. Um, this, this was a sort of a leitmotif of our decision-making, how national parliaments were just not featuring in so many areas of socioeconomic rights uh, dispute resolution. Um, and I think, therefore, that having a body like the Committee on Social Rights, or judges in other contexts, can actually enhance democratic accountability. So that's so interesting. And I mean, that, that is also one of my arguments, which is that you should see um, human rights adjudication as facilitating democracy and uh, strengthening and, and enhancing it. But I wonder whether we could come back to the point about defining the right. So as you know, in South Africa, um, there are so social economic rights in the constitution, but the way in which it's formulated is that there is, say, a right um, of access to housing, but in the next paragraph, it said the state must take all reasonable measures progressively to achieve this right. Much of the jurisprudence of the South African court has been to say, we as a court cannot um, define the content of the right. Our job is simply to check whether reasonable measures have been taken. This is partly uh, a discussion about what's come to be called minimum core, which is instead of defining the right as a whole, we simply define the minimum core, and that's been the, the favourite technique of the International Committee on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights. But that's not something the South African court was prepared to accept, and um, in fact took quite the opposite view to the one that you articulated, which is we should not be uh, delineating the content of the right. Most famously, as you know, the case of Mazibuko, where the court was asked to decide how much free water was necessary as a minimum. And they were given two different amounts. And they said, we can't choose between these because that would be defining a minimum core. So do you think it is feasible for an adjudicative body to make a decision about the content of the right and then go on and say, as you as you argued before, the state should be able to justify interfering with the right, which is what happens in civil and political rights adjudication. Or do you think social and economic rights, because they're often progressively realizable, subject to maximum resources, are somehow less able to be defined and in fact should not be defined by the adjudicative body? That's a really interesting question. I'm, 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 I'm trying to sort out my thoughts on this <laughs> question in my head, and, and I have been for several years now. But I have a very specific experience because, again, the European Committee on Social Rights adjudicates matters, socioeconomic issues, in a slightly different way from the UN Committee. Because we have the concepts of minimum core and progressive realisation, but we've always defined the minimum core in more substantive terms, this is going back to the late 1960s, because 
we are a European committee and there is a greater consensus on a socioeconomic core in Europe, at least historically, than is the case globally. So the UN Commission has always been not confident, I think is the best way of describing it, in analysing a minimum core because they have to do with a wide range of countries. And a judicial body like the South African Constitutional Court, they have to deal with massive socioeconomic inequalities. So it's very, very difficult to define a minimum core. The context in Europe is a little bit different. Where I think it's, 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 shall we say, it's slightly easier to point towards a, a basic level of dignity provision that the state is expected to provide. And there's actually um, examples of this being operationalized at national level. So in Germany, they have a well-established constitutional doctrine, the existence minimum, um, you know, the, the minimum level of, of support from the state that's necessary to live a life with dignity. So that is there in German constitutional law, for example, which is a type of minimum core. So on the Commission on Social Rights, we tended to have a more... Um, to adopt a more core-focused analysis of the right than, say, the South African Constitutional Court. and But we defined the, the core of the right in, in, in more expansive terms than the UN Committee. So in a way, it was a sort of compromise position in between progressive realisation and minimum core. I mean, for example, right to social welfare, we've defined it as requiring welfare support between that takes the form of between 40 and 50 percent of median equivalized income which is a uh, taken from social science research that effectively identifies that as the threshold of welfare support required to live a dignified existence so what we tend to do is we ask states to justify to tell us in reporting mechanisms tell us are they living up to this core and to give an objective justification of why they're not which can lead to certain interesting discussions, interesting debates about welfare sanctions, interesting debates about alternative methods of welfare delivery. The Nordic states, for example, tend to have quite low minimum level income guarantees, but tend to supplement it through things like housing benefits and other things, which they argue better target need than a straightforward minimum income provision. Um, so we tend to apply a different framework, and I found it intellectually very interesting that it was closer to a standard civil and political rights framework. But we were able to do that in the context of a an outline political consensus in Europe about the necessary level of um, welfare support and labour law rights and so on to live a dignified existence. If you don't have that consensus in place, I think it's more of a difficult approach to to, to adopt. So th this might be a situation where different horses for different courses may be the, may be the best approach. Santi, can I ask you about, um, having mentioned that you, 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 you placed socioeconomic rights right at the heart of the book, uh, right straight up if you want, it's... it's which, which, as I said, is, is, is really quite unusual and really, really, really interesting. Um, in your experience teaching and researching in this area, um, do you get hostility still to this foregrounding of socioeconomic rights from students or from f fellow staff? Or do you think there's been more of a, cons more of a move towards accepting that, accepting that uh, straightforward dichotomies here are a thing of the past. What's your sense of how the, the debate is evolving in this area? 
So that's a really interesting question. When I start the comparative human rights course, I always start with this question, which I ask the students to vote on. Bear in mind, these are graduate students who come from sometimes up to 20 different jurisdictions. And I ask them the question on a straight vote, do you think there is a right to holidays with pay? And of course, as we know, that is there in the Universal Declaration. The Universal Declaration includes, from all those years ago, a right to holidays of pay. But until this year, every single year, the, uh, the outcome of the vote has been about three saying, yes, there, should, there is a right, is a right. I obviously fudge a little bit whether there is a right or should be a right. And maybe 20 saying there is not. And then I get them to say why they think it's not. So there are all kinds of things that come up around that. Some of it is a, a horizontality question, which is why should employers have to pay for people's holidays? Another one is very much um, based in the notion that um, you are uh, your own boss. You're, you're, you are an autonomous person. And if you need a holiday, you should work for it. And somehow um, that shouldn't be the responsibility of anyone else to you. So I try and get them to say what the objections are. Another one is that this is very expensive. So what are the cost issues that are involved? What they don't do, although some of those who vote in favour sometimes do, is bring it back to actually a civil and political right, which is... Um, compulsory labour. You know, if you are unable, if you cannot afford to take a rest because you're not being paid for it, then is there any sense that this is a sense of forced labour? So I try and get them also to think about this. We may think this is a social and economic right, but actually, if you really put yourself in the shoes of a person who is earning at starvation level, then they can't take leisure because they actually all agree that you should have a rest. You know, six days you shall work, except the seventh day you shall rest. But they don't take the view that this should be something which is paid. Then when I tell them that it's in the Universal Declaration, they're always surprised, um, inevitably surprised. Now, what's interesting um, is that this year, for the first year, and this is the first year they've had my book, <laughs> actually the majority went the other way by quite a long way. <laughs> So I don't know whether that's because they want to, you know, show that, they're, that they agree with the teacher, <laughs> although I try not to have that uh, atmosphere, but whether or not there are some arguments which could be put forward, which can then begin to, to change this flow. I guess one of the wrapping up points that you, which, which we could make is that this is about comparative human rights law. And I wonder whether you think that the enterprise of doing of doing this project in a comparative way is helpful and in what ways it might be helpful? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think comparative analysis in this context can be hugely helpful. There is um, there's a very much a tendency to see things in the light of your own legal system. And I think in particular, if you're from the Anglo-American world, and obviously there's differences in the Anglo-American world about how they approach human rights issues, sometimes very big differences, there is a sort of common narrative about established expectations and assumptions, which very much kicks in when you come to the socio-economic rights framework, where there is this strong embedded intellectual tradition of skepticism about the socio-economic side of the dichotomy. 
And then it's really interesting. Obviously, it's interesting when you go to India and South Africa and South America, where for historical, cultural, contemporary living reality reasons, that dichotomy is a bit of a luxury and is recognized to be a bit of a luxury. And that's quite a, an educative experience. But it's also interesting, and it was interesting for me being on the Commission on Social Rights, suddenly dealing with lots of academics and activists and lawyers from continental Europe who also didn't subscribe to this dichotomy. They were often very reluctant for to have an excessive degree of judicial legal intervention in this field, in particular those from Nordic countries, but there was a very strong awareness that civil rights protection is contingent effectively on also enjoying a certain embedded sense of socioeconomic rights protection. And this would be much more the orthodox position in countries like France and Germany than it would in the Anglo-American world. Now, as I said, that doesn't always translate into a huge support for judges and courts to play a leading role in this. But there's much more of a resistance to the idea of a dichotomy. And I think that's very interesting because it, it makes the point very strongly that, it, that the dichotomy isn't something that exists in developed countries, whereas less developed countries, they don't have the dichotomy because it's more real. It's also a dichotomy that doesn't make much sense even when it comes to the highly developed uh, economies of Western Europe, and I think rightly so. So I think that's an example of how comparative learning really clarifies your thinking and can destabilise a lot of the embedded assumptions you tend to grow up with. Well, thank you so much, Colm, for joining us on this podcast and for sharing your very rich experience and for being so thoughtful about that experience, um, being able to share it with us. Thank you very much, Sandy, for having me. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.